At the end of the ecclesiastical year of 1823, she had for the last time a vision on the subject of making up the accounts of that year. The negligences of the church militant and of her servants were shown to Anne Catherine under various symbols. She saw how many graces had not been cooperated with or been rejected to a greater or lesser extent, and how many had been entirely thrown away. It was made known to her how our blessed Redeemer had deposited for each year in the garden of the church a complete treasure of his merits, sufficient for every requirement and for the expiation of every sin. The strictest account was to be given of all graces which had been neglected, wasted, or wholly rejected, and the church militant was punished for this negligence or infidelity of her servants by being oppressed by her enemies or by temporal humiliations. Revelations of this description raised to excess her love for the church, her mother. She passed days and nights in praying for her and offering to God the merits of Christ with continual groans and imploring mercy. Finally, on these occasions, she gathered together all her courage and offered to take upon herself both the fault and the punishment, like a child presenting itself before the king's throne in order to suffer the punishment she had incurred. It was then said to her, See how wretched and miserable thou art thyself, thou who art desirous to satisfy for the sins of others. And to her great terror, she beheld herself as one mournful mass of infinite imperfection. But still her love remained undaunted, and burst forth in these words, Yes, I am full of misery and sin, but I am thy spouse, O my Lord, and my Saviour. My faith in thee and in the redemption which thou hast brought us covers all my sins as with thy royal mantle. I will not leave thee until thou hast accepted my sacrifice, for the superabundant treasure of thy merits is closed to none of thy faithful servants. At length her prayer became wonderfully energetic, and to human ears there was like a dispute in combat with God in which she was carried away and urged on by the violence of love. If her sacrifice was accepted, her energy seemed to abandon her, and she was left to the repugnance of human nature for suffering. When she had gone through this trial, by keeping her eyes fixed on her Redeemer in the Garden of Olives, she next had to endure indescribable sufferings of every description, bearing them all with wonderful patience and sweetness. We used to see her remain several days together, motionless and insensible, looking like a dying lamb. Did we ask her how she was, she would half open her eyes and reply with a sweet smile, My sufferings are most salutary. At the beginning of Advent, her sufferings were a little soothed by sweet visions of the preparations made by the Blessed Virgin to leave her home and then of her whole journey with St. Joseph to Bethlehem. She accompanied them each day to the humble inns where they rested for the night, or went on before them to prepare their lodgings. During this time she used to take old pieces of linen, and at night, while sleeping, make them into baby clothes and caps for the children of poor women, 
the times of whose confinements were near at hand. The next day she would be surprised to see all these things neatly arranged in her drawers. This happened to her every year about the same time, but this year she had more fatigue and less consolation. Thus, at the hour of our Savior's birth, when she was usually perfectly overwhelmed with joy, she could only crawl with the greatest difficulty to the crib where the child Jesus was lying, and bring him no present but myrrh, no offering but her cross, beneath the weight of which she sank down half-dying at his feet. It seemed as though she were for the last time making up her earthly accounts with God, and for the last time also offering herself in the place of a countless number of men who were spiritually and corporally afflicted. Even the little that is known of the manner in which she took upon herself the sufferings of others is almost incomprehensible. She very truly said, This year the child Jesus has only brought me a cross and instruments of suffering. She became each day more and more absorbed in her sufferings, and although she continued to see Jesus traveling from city to city during his public life, the utmost she ever said on the subject was, briefly, to name in which direction he was going. Once she asked suddenly in a scarcely audible voice, What day is it? When told that it was the 14th of January, she added, Had I but a few days more, I should have related the entire life of our Savior, but now it is no longer possible for me to do so. These words were the most incomprehensible, as she did not appear to know even which year of the public life of Jesus she was then contemplating in spirit. In 1820 she had related the history of our Savior down to the Ascension, beginning at the 28th of July of the third year of the public life of Jesus, after which she returned to the first year of the life of Jesus, and had continued down to the 10th of January of the third year of his public life. On the 27th of April, 1823, in consequence of a journey made by the writer, an interruption of her narrative took place and lasted down to the 21st of October. She then took up the thread of her narrative where she had left it and continued it to the last weeks of her life. When she spoke of a few days being wanted, her friend himself did not know how far her narrative went not having had leisure to arrange what he had written. After her death, he became convinced that if she had been able to speak during the last 14 days of her life, she would have brought it down to the 28th of July of the third year of the public life of our Lord, consequently to where she had taken it up in 1820. Her condition daily became more frightful. She, who usually suffered in silence, uttered stifled groans, so awful was the anguish she endured. On the 15th of January, she said, The child Jesus brought me great sufferings at Christmas. I was once more by his manger at Bethlehem. He was burning with fever and showed me his sufferings and those of his mother. They were so poor that they had no food but a wretched piece of bread. He bestowed still greater sufferings upon me and said to me, Thou art mine, thou art my spouse. Suffer as I suffered, without asking the reason why. 
I do not know what my sufferings are to be, nor how long they will last. I submit blindly to my martyrdom, whether for life or for death. I only desire that the hidden designs of God may be accomplished in me. On the other hand, I am calm, and I have consolations in my sufferings. Even this morning I was very happy. Blessed be the holy name of God. Her sufferings continued, if possible, to increase. Sitting up, and with her eyes closed, she fell from one side to another, while smothered groans escaped her lips. If she lay down, she was in danger of being stifled. Her breathing was hurried and oppressed, and all her nerves and muscles were shaken and trembled with anguish. After violent retching, she suffered terrible pain in her bowels, so much so that it was feared gangrene must be forming there. Her throat was parched and burning, her mouth swollen, her cheeks crimson with fever, her hands white as ivory. The scars of the stigmata shone like silver beneath her distended skin. Her pulse gave from 160 to 180 pulsations per minute. Although unable to speak from her excessive suffering, she bore every duty perfectly in mind. On the evening of the 26th, she said to her friend, Today is the ninth day. You must pay for the wax taper and novena at the chapel of St. Anne. She was alluding to a novena which she had asked to have made for her intention, and she was afraid lest her friends should forget it. On the 27th, at two o'clock in the afternoon, she received extreme unction, greatly to the relief both of her soul and body. In the evening, her friend, the excellent curé of H. Inaudible, prayed at her bedside, which was an immense comfort to her. She said to him, How good and beautiful all this is! And again, May God be a thousand times praised and thanked! The approach of death did not wholly interrupt the wonderful union of her life with that of the church. A friend, having visited her on the 1st of February in the evening, had placed himself behind her bed, where she could not see him, and was listening with the utmost compassion to her low moans and interrupted breathing, when suddenly all became silent, and he thought that she was dead. At this moment the evening bell ringing for the matins of the purification was heard. It was the opening of this festival which caused her soul to be ravished in ecstasy. Although still in a very alarming state, she let some sweet and loving words concerning the Blessed Virgin escape her lips during the night and day of the festival. Toward twelve o'clock in the day, she said in a voice already changed by the near approach of death, It was long since I had felt so well. I have been ill quite a week, have I not? I feel as though I knew nothing about this world of darkness. Oh, what light the Blessed Mother of God showed me! She took me with her, and how willingly would I have remained with her. Here she recollected herself for a moment, and then said, placing her finger on her lip, But I must not speak of these things. From that time she said that the slightest word in her praise greatly increased her sufferings. The following day she was worse. On the seventh in the evening, being rather more calm, she said, 
Ah, my sweet Lord Jesus, thanks be to thee again, and again for every part of my life. Lord, thy will and not mine be done. On the 8th of February, in the evening, a priest was praying near her bed, when she gratefully kissed his hand, begged him to assist at her death, and said, O Jesus, I live for thee, I die for thee. O Lord, praise be to thy holy name. I no longer see or hear. Her friends wished to change her position and thus ease her pain a little, but she said, I am on the cross. It will soon all be over. Leave me in peace. She had received all the last sacraments, but she wished to accuse herself once more in confession of a slight fault which she had already many times confessed. It was probably of the same nature as a sin which she had committed in her childhood, of which she often accused herself, and which consisted in having gone through a hedge into a neighbor's garden and coveted some apples which had fallen on the ground. She had only looked at them, for, thank God, she said, she did not touch them, but she thought that was a sin against the Tenth Commandment. The priest gave her a general absolution, after which she stretched herself out, and those around her thought that she was dying. The person who had often given her pain now drew near her bed and asked her pardon. She looked at him in surprise, and said with the most expressive accent of truth, I have nothing to forgive any living creature. During the last days of her life, when her death was momentarily expected, several of her friends remained constantly in the room adjoining hers. They were speaking in a low tone, and so that she could not hear them of her patience, faith, and other virtues, when all on a sudden they heard her dying voice saying, Ah, for the love of God, do not praise me. That keeps me here, because I then have to suffer double. Oh my God, how many fresh flowers are falling upon me. She always saw flowers as the forerunners and figures of sufferings. Then she rejected all praises with the most profound conviction of her own unworthiness, saying, God alone is good. Everything must be paid, down to the last farthing. I am poor and loaded with sin, and I can only make up for having been praised by sufferings united to those of Jesus Christ. Do not praise me, but let me die in ignominy with Jesus on the cross. Bodan, and his life of Father Surin, relates a similar trait of a dying man who had been thought to have lost the sense of hearing, but who energetically rejected a word of praise pronounced by those who were surrounding his bed. A few hours before death, for which she was longing, saying, O Lord, assist me. Come, O Lord Jesus. Word of praise appeared to detain her, and she most energetic, energetically rejected it by making the following act of humility. I cannot die if so many good persons think well of me through a mistake. I beg of you to tell them all that I am a wretched sinner. Would that I could proclaim, so as to be heard by all men, how great a sinner I am. I am far beneath the good thief who was crucified by the side of Jesus, for he and all his contemporaries 
had not so terrible an account as we shall have to render of all the graces which have been bestowed upon the church. After this declaration, she appeared to grow calm, and she said to the priest who was comforting her, I feel now as peaceful, peaceful and as much filled with hope and confidence as if I had never committed a sin. Her eyes turned lovingly toward the cross, which was placed at the foot of her bed. Her breathing became accelerated. She often drank some liquid, and when the little crucifix was held to her, she from humility only kissed the feet. A friend who was kneeling by her bedside in tears had the comfort of often holding her the water with which to moisten her lips. As she had laid her hand on which the white scar of the wound was most distinctly visible, on the counterpane, he took hold of that hand which was already cold, and as he inwardly wished for some mark of farewell from her, she slightly pressed his. Her face was calm and serene, bearing an expression of heavenly gravity which can only be compared to that of a valiant wrestler, who after making unheard of efforts to gain the victory, sinks back and dies in the very act of seizing the prize. The priest again read through the prayers for persons in their last agony, and she then felt an inward inspiration to pray for a pious young friend whose feast day it was. Eight o'clock struck. She breathed more freely for the space of a few minutes, and then cried three times with a deep groan. O Lord, assist me. Lord, Lord, come. The priest rang his bell and said, She is dying. Several relations and friends who were in the next room came in and knelt down to pray. She was then holding in her hand a lighted taper, which the priest was supporting. She breathed forth several slight sighs, and that her pure soul escaped her chaste lips, and hastened, clothed in the nuptial garment, to appear in heavenly hope before the divine bridegroom, and be united forever to that blessed company of virgins, who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Her lifeless body sank gently back on the pillows at half past eight o'clock p.m. on the 9th of February, 1824. A person who had taken great interest in her during life wrote as follows. After her death, I drew near to her bed. She was supported by pillows and lying on her left side. Some crutches, which had been prepared for her by her friends on one occasion, when she had been able to take a few turns in the room, were hanging over her head, crossed in a corner. Near them hung a little oil painting, representing the death of the Blessed Virgin, which had been given to her by the Princess of Psalm. The expression of her countenance was perfectly sublime, and bore the traces of the spirit of self-sacrifice, patience and resignation of her whole life. She looked as though she had died for the love of Jesus, and the very act of performing some work of charity for others. Her right hand was resting on the counterpane, that hand on which God had bestowed the unparalleled favor of being able at once to recognize, by the touch, anything that was holy, or that had been consecrated by the church, a favor which perhaps no one had ever enjoyed to so great an extent a favor by which the interests of religion might be inconceivably promoted, provided it was made use of with discretion, and which surely had not been bestowed upon a poor, ignorant peasant girl 
merely for her own personal gratification. For the last time I took in mind the hand marked with a sign so worthy of our utmost veneration, the hand which was as a spiritual instrument in the instant recognition of whatever was holy, that it might be honored even in a grain of sand, the charitable industrious hand which had so often fed the hungry and clothed the naked. This hand was now cold and lifeless. A great favor had been withdrawn from earth. God had taken from us the hand of his spouse, who had rendered testimony to, prayed, and suffered for the truth. It appeared as though it had not been without meaning, that she had resignedly laid down upon her bed the hand which was the outward expression of a particular privilege granted by divine grace. Fearful of having the strong impression made upon me by the sight of her countenance diminished by the necessary but disturbing preparations which were being made around her bed, I thoughtfully left her room. If, I said to myself, if, like so many holy solitaries, she had died alone in a grave prepared by her own hands, her friends, the birds, would have covered her with flowers and leaves. If, like other religious, she had died among virgins consecrated to God, that their tender care and respectful veneration had followed her to the grave, as was the case, for example, with St. Columba of Rieti, it would have been edifying and pleasing to those who loved her. But doubtless such honors rendered to her lifeless remains would not have been comfortable conformable to her love for Jesus, whom she so much desired to resemble in death as in life. The same friend later wrote as follows. Unfortunately, there was no official post-mortem examination of her body, and none of those inquiries by which she had been so tormented during life were instituted after her death. The friends who surrounded her neglected to examine her body, probably for fear of coming upon some striking phenomenon discovery of which might have caused much annoyance in various ways. On Wednesday, the 11th of February, her body was prepared for burial. A pious female, who would not give up to anyone the task of rendering her this last mark of affection, described to me as follows the condition in which she found her. Her feet were crossed like the feet of a crucifix. The places of the stigmata were more red than usual. When he raised her head, blood flowed from her nose and mouth. All her limbs remained flexible, and with none of the stiffness of death, even till the coffin was closed. On Friday the 13th of February, she was taken to the grave, followed by the entire population of the place. She reposes in the cemetery to the left of the cross, on the side nearest the hedge. In the grave in front of hers there rests a good old peasant of Weld, and the grave behind a poor but virtuous female from Durnekamp. On the evening of the day when she was buried, a rich man went, not to Pilate, but to the curé of the place. He asked for the body of Anne Catherine, not to place it in a new sepulchre, but to buy it at a high price for a Dutch doctor. The proposal was rejected as it deserved, but it appears that the report spread in the little town that the body had been taken away, and it is said that the people went in great numbers to the cemetery to ascertain whether the grave had been robbed. To these details we will add the following extract from an account printed in December 1824 
and the Journal of Catholic Literature of Kurtz. This account was written by a person with whom we are unacquainted, but who appears to have been well informed. About six or seven weeks after the death of Anne Catherine Emmerich, a report having got about that her body had been stolen away, the grave and coffin were opened in secret by order of the authorities and the presence of seven witnesses. They found with surprise, not unmixed with joy, that corruption had not yet begun its work in the body of the pious maiden. Her features and countenance were smiling like those of a person who was dreaming sweetly. She looked as though she had just been placed in the coffin, nor did her body exhale any corpse-like smell. It is good to keep the secret of the king, says Jesus, the son of Sirach, but it is also good to reveal to the world the greatness of the mercy of God. We have been told that a stone has been placed over her grave. We'll lay upon it these pages. May they contribute to immortalize the memory of a person who has relieved so many pains of soul and body, and that of the spot where her mortal remains lie awaiting the day of resurrection. Here ends the biography of the life of Anne Catherine Emmerich.